Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen... The Bachelorette is about to start. The television show. Ooh. The most recent Bachelor found himself a lady. Thank and now, goodness. Now they're riding off into the sunset. Eternal and love. As, I mean, there's no other option on reality shows. Yeah. You always find eternal love. You must. And so I, I mentioned The Bachelorette casually to you in an email. And you are an etymology guru. Like, if I may give you a compliment right now, Kristen, it's that you're really good at etymology. Well, I think I'm more at Googling things like... You know, insert word etymology. Kristen, don't sell yourself short. Well, I just gotta be, I gotta be honest with my, you know, with our listeners, Molly. Well, you, you took my offhand comment about bachelor, bachelorette, and you went all etymological. Is that the word? Etymological? Yeah. You went all that on it. Uh huh. Tell us what you found out. Well, here, here's the thing, Molly, cause I, I've, I've thought about the term bachelor before Mm -hmm. because I don't feel like bachelorette is necessarily equivalent to a bachelor because I don't know about you, but when I think of a bachelor, it implies something kind of uh, sexy and mysterious. Like you don't know whether or not he, you know, a a bachelor confirmed bachelor is cool. Just living on his own in his sweet bachelor pad. He's always got like a cool wet bar. Yeah. Bringing some ladies home. He may or may not call them. I don't know. Whereas a bachelorette just sounds like, well, first of all, it sounds like someone who is part of an annoying bridal party. Exactly. Well, it's someone who's already getting married. Mm -hmm. She's not single. She's engaged. Exactly. And there's something kind of diminutive about the the bachelorette, Mm -hmm. you know, and we never think of like you would never refer to Jennifer Aniston, say, as a bachelorette, whereas George Clooney, on the other hand, is definitely a bachelor. Right. So. So yeah, you, you basically just planted a seed in, in my head. Well, you watered the seed, I should say. I'm that a was gardener. already in my head. You, what can I do? You are the gardener of my mind, Molly. <laughs> um, so yeah, I wanted to do a little bit of digging to find out. Well, more. Don't dig up the seed. Well, the garden metaphor is falling apart, Kristen. Oh no. <laughs> Let's back up. So I wanted to find out the meaning behind bachelor and where we got this and whether or not there really is a female equivalent to bachelor. Okay. So. If I may, Molly, share with you a little a little history of the term bachelor. And this comes from the online etymological dictionary. Because, unfortunately, I don't have an Oxford English dictionary. And, uh, I, you know, Molly, if you ever want to get me a present, I'm saying it now. It's on the podcast. I really think she's saying it now so that. someone higher up in this company will hear this and get her a dictionary. Yeah, I want an OED. Okay, so bachelor, the term comes around in the 1300s, and it's means a youthful knight or a novice in arms. And it's a French term. And uh, it's usually referred to as a knight bachelor. It's a young squire in training for knighthood. Um, and then we have it evolve in the 14th century from knight in training to junior member of a guild or university to then in the late 14th century to an unmarried man. And this transition to the meaning of unmarried man parallels sort of a shift in the institution of marriage when the Catholic Church in, in Europe really started to formalize and institutionalize the rules governing marriage and make it more of uh, a formal process, you know, dictating who can get married, 
how it happens, whether or not you can get divorced, have a marriage annulled, etc. All right. So now bachelorette. Bachelorette. You would think that it would be very related to the word, but it's not. It was from young girl, basically, in French. Yes. Um, they had bacalette, and that evolved into bachelor girl in 1895, which I would assume had a similar meaning as bachelor. However, still, we were on uneven footing here with bachelor versus bachelor girl. Bachelor girl sounds like you know, like a 17-year-old. And it and it really meant student. It goes back to that definition of bachelor that had to do with the junior member of a university. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was a girl in high school, essentially, right? Yeah, co-ed. Um, and then it's not until 1935 that we have the evolution of bachelorette in the sense that we think of it today. And not surprisingly, that comes after the arrival of the term bachelor party in 1922. So the history of bachelorette is pretty short. Pretty short and not equivalent. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do a little more digging to find out, well, you know, we haven't been, you know, women, bachelorette does not equal female bachelor. Right. By any stretch of the imagination. I don't think. Um, however, Molly, I think the term that probably all of our listeners are thinking of right now to term a single woman is spinster. Spinster. Spinster, yes. It's a scary term because of all the loaded connotation that it carries. Mm-hmm. So Kristen being the etymological, it's a hard word to say, genius that she is, found us the origin of the word spinster. And I actually ran across this while reading Marriage, a History by Stephanie Kuntz, which is a fascinating, fascinating read. Um, and she points out that Spinster used to be a term of honor for a woman who spun yarn, and this was back in the 1600s. But then in the 18th century, we have a big shift in marriage from being a union of two people that were more, it's more of a brokered arrangement. It's a financial deal. Yeah. Your um, father picks someone up for you. Exactly. You guys because, get married. Exactly, because a lot of the wealth is property-based. You need to consolidate your resources, hence... You marry two people off and join them together, and then you can reap the the benefits. But in the 18th century, there's a big shift toward industrialization, away from landed property, and with that comes a shift towards marriage for love. And we've talked about this before in the podcast on whether or not your parents should pick your marriage and arrange marriages and things like that. So along with this, Coos points out that there's a new sentimentalization of wives and mothers because of this idealized perception of marriage as something very treasured. It's very sweet. You know, it's it's destiny between two star-crossed lovers. You get to add all this romance into it that mm-hmm. you might not have been able to add when it was just a, a deal between you and the guy from the next county. But it's it's very interesting to me that the change, that negative connotation of Spencer happens so soon after the marriage by fascination. Right, because uh, from from Spencer as an honorable term for you know a hardworking woman spinning yarn becomes uh, Spencer. No one wants to pick. You're so lonely. You just have you and your ball of yarn to keep you warm. Right. So it's kind of like the single woman moves from being just this burdensome piece of property that, that a family can't utilize mm-hmm. to, um, to improve their state 
or their wealth or whatever to uh, just being kind of pitiful because it's marriage because becomes something more based on individual choice and no one wants to choose, if you will, this this woman. So she just becomes the sad little spinster. Yeah, it, it just as easily spinster could have been a word that implied that you didn't have any property or father, you know, or family behind you to make this match. It could have easily just been a term of class. Mm-hmm. And now because marriage became so idealized, it became this this unlovable, unwanted woman. Yeah, and if you and if you don't believe us, don't take our word for it. Take Bridget Hills, who wrote a book all about this called Women Alone, Spinsters in England from 1660 to 1850, which I'm sure so many of you out there have read. Um, it's on everyone's nightstand. But uh, she says, in the past, women who didn't marry were regarded at best as failed women to be pitied or derided, and at worst, ruined women whose presence contaminated society. Because in the 1800s, there really, especially in England and in the United States to some degree, there were uh, there was a growing group of unmarried women, because at this point, really for the first time, women didn't have to get married to be secure. They had more of a choice in things because they had opportunities to earn their own income. And with this growing group of unwed women in the 19th century, it became kind of this social phenomenon, you know, of like, what do we do with all these unmarried women? And at the same time, if you've got this growing idealization of marriage, it, it has so much pressure now. You don't want to, you don't want to ruin your chance at it. You've got to find this perfect guy who's going to fit all your needs. So I think we have also these women who are staying single by choice just because how can you live up to these romantic ideals that have been infused into marriage? So while socially there's a negative connotation, in the past with single women, at the same time, Molly, women today have a lot to thank for these women who chose to be single because they did a lot to open the doors for equalizing women's education, opening up universities to women, um, opening up career opportunities to women, the early suffrage movement, etc. A lot of it has to do with the actions of unmarried women because their responsibilities weren't tied up in home and child rearing. Well, not that it was all making accomplishments and drinking margaritas because the women essentially might have been considered the indentured servant of the family if they didn't leave and go create their own. You know, there are these um, tales of the women who are living, you know, as sort of the unpaid domestic servants. And when you think about, you know, aging parents, a parent who might get sick, it was automatically assumed that the woman who didn't have the family would move back home and take care of them. So she assumes this caretaker role. And in some, you know, like films, it's portrayed as being a choice that they're happy to make. They're happy to be there for for their family. And in some films, it's more like, oh, this is such a burden. I should have gotten married so I could have just flown in on the weekends and mm-hmm. not dealt with all this. And I think that one, um, one thing that's good to point out uh, that might be helpful for understanding sort of the peculiar role of... Um, of single women, married versus single women in the 18th and 19th centuries are this, these things called coverture laws, which were just laws by which women's legal rights were subsumed by her husband once she becomes married. Now, before that, un- unmarried women back in the day had, um, had more rights to own property and make contracts in her own name. However, if she wasn't married, a lot of times, um, she, she would still be under the thumb of, say, an older brother or her parents if they were still alive. So there were still all these legal restrictions 
um, around what single women and married women could and couldn't do. But legally, single women did have more independence, legal independence than married women under these coverture laws. But what did it matter, Kristen? Because they were all alone. All alone. And you were, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but Bachelor, I mean, he's got the swinging Bachelor pad. As you said, he, he brings the ladies home. And along the way, Spinster really acquired this, this tone of withered sexuality or yes. never used sexuality. It was, you know, you, you can't be a spinster and have a healthy sex life, essentially. Yeah. A lot of times there are older virgins. I mean, to put it quite bluntly, uh, cause if you think about the portrayal of spinsters, um, in popular culture or in art or whatever, it's oftentimes they're clothed in very modest, high necked, long skirt, you know, glasses, perhaps hair in a tight bun. That's the classic spinster look. And, you know, some scholars have made the case that that has become the average spinster look almost to frighten single women into getting married mm-hmm. because these, you know, there came points in, in our, in our history where we did need women to get married and have children. You know, that is the propagation of the species. And so it, it was seen as abnormal that you wouldn't want to help that along. Let's say after a period of war, when the population had been decreased. Um, so that was sort of, you know, as, as everything kind of painted by culture as here's the ideal and here's what you can be if it doesn't happen for you. If mm-hmm. you are so unlovable that you cannot enter a marriage of love, woe unto you. Woe unto you. Now, see, to me, it makes sense that this idea of single women just felt very problematic in uh, 18th century, 19th century society, because it kind of was a new thing. And there were so many huge shifts going on with industrialization and um, a shift in how even uh, the domestic politics of the day. But then when we go, when we move forward a little bit into the 20th century, um, there's a book called Bachelor Girls by Betsy Israel that charts sort of the uh, social history of single women. And, there seems to be a pretty, well, I'd say kind of positive shift more during the jazz age where there's more of a modern idea of single women being okay. They're striking out on their own. They're going to the big cities and it's a little more glamorous than it used to be. So in the early 20th century, we've got what Israel calls the new woman. And it's sort of an umbrella term that covers all these, these new the kind of single women that are being appreciated in a new way. You know, we've got beginning strains of feminism. So this new woman is very left intellectual, you know, not going to stay at home. And it kind of evolves as that century goes on into something that can be really glamorous, bohemian, um, that daydream that every girl I think has at some point or another of living alone in Paris or New York City mm-hmm. and just and living a romantic lifestyle. I think wouldn't you say this is sort of the only pause we see in terms of the single female life being an a- achievable, attainable, desirable thing? Yeah, it seems like the beginning of a, of a pretty big shift. And um, Israel also points out that the media really honed in on this angle of this single phenomenon of for the first time, like it's OK for these these women to be independent and going to college. And she also mentions that um this this is the first generation to really reap the benefits from the what she calls the Civil War era 
blessed Spencers of the day who were kind of hammering down um, the barriers to education and to career, and they were really taking advantage of all this. And then from the 20s and into the 1960s, especially in New York and large metropolitan areas like that, we have an influx of single career girls coming in to the big city to make their way. And um, I think one of the uh, most quintessential single girl havens, if you will, of the day would have been the Barbizon Hotel. And this was one of New York's many women's only dormitories uh, where girls would come. A lot of times they would be, you know, from wealthier backgrounds or they would come from small towns having scrimped and saved to come to the big city and, and chase their dreams down. And the Barbizon was really, I mean, it was just the peak of glamour for young girls coming, coming in. And by young, I mean, you know, like 18, 19, 20. Yeah. A lot of girls coming to find a career, sometimes in modeling, because one of the things you were graded on to get into the Barbizon were your looks and your dress. Yeah. And no wonder because, um, some of Barbizon's alumni include Joan Crawford, Grace Kelly, Sylvia Plath, Alan McGraw. Actually, the bell jar is based loosely on her life at the Barbizon. So I think that takes us up through the 60s, this glamour of the Barbizon, a young woman setting out on her own. But I think that that's the last time, as I said, that we see the female single life really celebrated like that. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, what they say in this article in Vanity Fair that we're taking this from is that what a lot of girls were on the hunt for instead of a career was a husband. So in in the back of the mind, there's always going to be that uh, you're going to settle down someday. Now, I think we do have to point out, Molly, that in the early 1970s, there was a brief resurgence and appreciation of this joy of being a single woman. Um, there was a paper that we found by researcher Deborah J. Mustard, and she really examined Spencer's in film. And in her, in her paper, she points out that Newsweek ran a cover story in the early 70s, um, a, you know, really celebrating the rediscovered independence of single women. And kind of what that brings to mind, I guess, is following close on the heels of that, are uh, is the rise of, you know, the career girl in the late 70s and 80s and the, you know, the women's power suits, the big shoulders, you know, women are really starting to to break through those glass ceilings and make really large strides. But I would argue that that kind of single celebration is a different tone from, you know, the, the, the single career girls in the 20s, 30s, 40s, because it's a lot more, um, I guess, focused on climbing the career ladder and striking it out on their own. There's just a different tone to it. There's a different tone. And I also think that in, you know, in this paper about the films, it indicates that there could be a possible backlash. She talks about the movie Fatal Attraction, where you've got an older woman who was single, had the affair and then went crazy because she didn't get the settled down happy ending. Yeah, they that can she have, wanted. Well, they can have everything that a bachelor has. Okay. To put this back in bachelor terms, they can have the high power job and the slick apartment and the nice clothes and plenty of dates. But unlike the bachelor, who's fine going to bed alone and, you know, just serially dating the, you know, single white female at some point, she's going to boil your bunny. She's going to boil your bunny. You know, so because- there's, there's that element of danger still. I mean, despite all those, you know, career, just to think about it in movie terms, like, yeah, you can have like the working girl, Mel- Melanie Griffith head off and save the day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the same era, we've got fatal attraction and, and all these movies where the woman's just like, uh, I, 
I am okay until I realize I'm alone. And that's, I mean, that continues on. You see that in romantic comedies even today. Sure. I mean, like going back to, you know, the Jennifer Aniston versus George Clooney reference. I mean, come on. Like think about how the tabloids, I mean, the tabloids have given her a narrative of single lady who is sad. Yeah. All she wants is a baby and someone to raise it with. Yeah. And, um, so I think at this point in our conversation, we can, we now have a list of, of terms that are not, just not equivalent, don't have the same all-encompassing, I guess, uh, power as Bachelor because, you know, we've got, you know, Spencer, obviously not, Bachelorette, no, Career Woman, no, because there's still, like, eventually you wake up and you're sad. Right. Career Woman doesn't have it all necessarily. Um, so let's keep moving forward, Molly, because I think one offshoot of the Spencer that we haven't talked about are these feline-related terms, a trio of feline-related <laughs> terms, which let's not even spend too much time on them because I don't even know that they deserve that much merit. The first one being the cat lady. Now, see, here's the thing that really bothers me. I really love cats. I really don't like dogs. I'm not a dog person. But by virtue of having a cat versus owning a dog, I'm somehow painting myself as single and sad. Don't don't you agree that's the case? Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a blog post we found from Forbes magazine that um you know was talking about like the danger of you know older women. Well, I shouldn't say older women. I guess women our age um owning cats because it's like if you bring a guy home and you're single and in your mid twenties, mid thirties, it's gonna freak a guy out because you're gonna look like a cat lady, which is just. It's just silly. You know, it really is silly. And it was kind of funny though, because they did, um, they did a survey to find out, like, look at the, the biggest, like, the cat friendliest cities in the U.S. and then break down number of single males versus single females. And actually in all of the cat friendliest cities in the U.S., there were more single males than females, which I say statistically debunks the cat lady. Eerie. Also, we shared this on our Twitter, uh, last week, the blog Cute Boys with Cats. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, if a guy owns a cat, it's adorable. It shows, like, some nurturing side. And cats are so funny and playful. But if a girl owns a cat, it's sad. It's typical. Because we've got this term cat lady, which, again, is not a good equivalent to bachelor. And how do we become associated with cats? Well, it goes back to the early days of domestication when cats were kept around the house because they were skillful hunters. Eating the rats yeah, that got into the flower. And the dogs would go out to hunt with the men. And so cats, therefore, became more associated with the home and with women. And now we have cat ladies. And, of course, cat lady leads us to what you've all been waiting for, folks. Cougar. The cougar. Now, Molly, I would say that you and I are a little too young to be cougars. I don't think we can be considered cougars unless we're cruising high schools. I believe the the source you sent me said 30 plus. 30 plus, yeah. The cougar, 35 plus. The cougar, for any of you who um, uh, are completely out of the pop culture loop, is the slang term for an older woman who likes to date the younger man. A Demi Moore, Ashton Kusher kind of relationship. Yes. She's usually... Pretty attractive, well-kept, and she wants some younger meat, to put it in cougar animalistic terms. Now, I would say that if you've listened to our podcast, you know that we love our Canadian fans. We know we have a lot of them out there. We try and give props to Canada whenever we can. But Canada, you are to blame for this cougar phenomenon. Yes, according to the Grammarphobia blog, um, cougar is thought to have originated with 
the Vancouver Canucks hockey team in the late 1980s when the NHL players supposedly used the term to describe groupies, female groupies who were a tad older. Now, there isn't solid evidence to support that, but some linguists have tracked the use of cougar to Western Canada in the early 1990s when the term pretty much meant the same thing. And then in 2001, when Canadians Elizabeth Vanderzog and Elspeth Sage launched a tongue-in-cheek website named cougardate.com, it was specifically meant for women uh, in their mid-30s looking to date. And they say that they got the idea for Cougar Date when a nephew of theirs, who was a hockey player, referred to the two women as cougars. Hockey players. Hockey players. Who knew? Molly, if you had asked me to guess the origin of Cougar, I would not have said Canadian hockey players. And then in 2001, we've got a dating columnist for the Toronto Sun who writes the book Cougar, a guide for older women dating younger men. And, you know, Kristen, I was trying to remember the first time I heard the word cougar. And mm. I think it was probably probably television, like shows like How I Met Your Mother. They they did a big cougar episode. Um, so it's hard to say, like, exactly where on the timeline, like all of these cougar things got really popular. But it's cougars everywhere now. But it's cougars everywhere. Except did you see that last week uh, Google banned cougardate.com from uh, advertising on their site. I did see that. But the sites, cougar backlash. Yes, there's a cougar backlash, but it's not because they don't like the word. It's just they think that it's inappropriate because I think that it's another one of those things where we want our spinsters to be old women who don't have sex, and cougar date gives that sexuality back to the women. Now, Molly, it sounds like you are applauding the term cougar. I'm not applauding the, t- the term cougar, but I think it's a double standard because Google didn't ban any of the sites that are geared towards older men, older bachelors looking for younger women. Mm. So that, I do think that's a double standard. And I do think, yeah, I, I do think that if there is a term that gives the women back the sexuality that Spinster totally takes away from them, then that can be a good thing. Okay. But let me let me give you a caveat. I do not like this new term, cheetah. Now, Molly, I don't even know that we need to spend much time on Cheetah because, first of all, it is a concoction of a man named Spencer Morgan, who's a writer for the New York Observer, who's obviously just looking to start an Internet meme. And um, I don't really know how else to say this, except that Morgan's definition of Cheetah is nothing more than bull. Strong words. And I, I can support that, Kristen, because when you sent me this article, I thought it was a joke. Like, that's how ridiculous. Ridiculous, I think this cheetah thing is. Yes, according to Spencer Morgan, a cheetah is, quote, a cougar's younger cousin who's generally a young woman fresh out of a relationship on the prowl to take advantage of helpless, drunk men who are out of her league. Basically, it's a woman who has been dumped and she has somehow lost her looks in the process of dating some guy. And the only way that she can possibly have relations with another man who might be a little more attractive than she is, is to wait until until around 2 a.m. when they all have their drunk goggles on and she's going to swoop in, take advantage of him, and then leave the next day, essentially date raping him? I don't know. I think that that's, Morgan... That's, what he, that's the assumption he makes. Yeah, Morgan makes some uh, some pretty off-the-wall claims about this, uh, this cheetah thing, which makes me wonder where he got the idea for it in the first place. I have a, I have an idea on that, Kristen. Okay. I mean, think about what we've just talked about, about these, this history of demonizing a spinster. I think it's the same thing. I think that, 
um, there is some danger still in our society where people don't know what to do with unmarried women. And so the fact that they are out there living what could be considered the bachelor lifestyle scares people. And so I think it's the same negative connotations apply to a woman who is unmarried as were applied back in, you know, 18th century England when they were idealizing mothers and wives. And maybe that's why even today, even in 2010, we don't have a good term, I would argue, for an unmarried woman. Now, some feminists have tried to reclaim the term spinster, saying, you know what, back in the day, this was a term of honor for women who worked hard, spinning wool, and it was just co-opted by, you know, the marital industrial complex, et cetera. Let's reclaim it, positive. But I just don't, I don't necessarily buy it. I don't think that you can... You don't want that one back. Uh, let's see. What else, Kristen? Well, and then we have things like Gibson girl, Barbizon girl, working girl, all of these, you know, kind of bachelor equivalents, but they all have girl attached to them, which implies immaturity. Mm-hmm. Molly, what are we going to do? I think we're going to ask our listeners. I think we're going to ask our listeners. What term should we fabulous single ladies try to reclaim as our own. I mean, it doesn't even matter. Like, are we thinking too much about this? Like, am I just too hard pressed on having some kind of bachelor? Because some people have also said, well, why don't we just use bachelor? You know, and let's see, I don't like bachelor. bachelor. You don't like bachelor. Cause I think it sounds masculine because I've been fed heteronormative ideas all my life. Help us out listeners. What should get and, and get creative? You know, we're Molly, Molly and I are open to all sorts of ideas. Is there a good Bachelor equivalent for single women. Mom stuff at howstuffworks.com. Send in your ideas, please. Or post it to our Twitter or Facebook. Any any way, shape, or form. Just get us your suggestions. And in the meantime, here are a couple of listener emails. Well, Molly, I've got a reading list here to kick things off. This is from Amy in Ireland. And she is reading 1984 by, ooh, she's reading a lot of George Orwell. She's reading 1984, Coming Up for Air, and A Clergyman's Daughter, all by George Orwell. She is also reading Catch-22 by Joseph Heller and Catcher in the Rye by Salinger. She's got some classics up there. Some classics. I'm always a fan of crossing off the classics on, you know, during the, during the summer. It's a good time to do it. Feel accomplished. Yes. I've got an email from Sarah, and this is about the Bikini Podcast. She, you know, we, we kind of gave Sports Illustrated a hard time. She writes that she works as an artist for the design firm that handles the SI swimsuit calendars. She does not specifically work with that calendar, by the way, but she sees the raw photos that are sent to us by SI in our color proofing room. The artists here remove moles, cellulite, stretch marks, tattoos, body hair, accentuate curves, even the skin tone, etc., to make that pi- picture-perfect beach look. I think the rise of bikini has led to the rise of many other services and professions like personal trainers, stylists, tanning salons, and the like, and of course, professional photo retouch artists. This might be a mixed bag of blessings, but it keeps people like me employed. In the end, I'd like to remind all the listeners out there that if you ever feel insecure about not looking like a model in the photo, that even the model doesn't look like the photo. That look is made by artists on computers. We all have flaws and imperfections, so unless you have a professional retouching you, embrace your looks. Throw whatever swimmer makes you happy and enjoy your summer. Excellent. So thanks so much for the emails, guys. Keep them coming at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Follow me and Molly on Twitter and Facebook as well. And as always, you can check out our blog during the week to see what we're writing about. It's the Stuff Mom Never Told You blog. and It is at howstuffworks.com. 
want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?